Last time we spoke about the naval battle of Cape Esperance. The Japanese lost a heavy cruiser, three destroyers, and 565 men. But perhaps even more painful was the hit to Japanese pride, as it was done during a night battle. In contrast, Admiral Scott's victory was hailed as a grand victory for the Americans. The USS Duncan was lost. Boys was severely damaged, and Salt Lake City and Fahrenheit would require some repairs. A total of 163 American officers and men died. Though the IGN received a bitter defeat, they were nowhere near done with Guadalcanal. They followed up their defeat by lobbing 973 shells from battleships Congo and Haruna at Henderson Field, crippling its air force and causing terrible damage to the runway and facilities. The situation on Guadalcanal was still desperate for the Marines. However, today we are traveling back to Green Hell as the good old Australians are about to launch their counteroffensive. This episode is the Kokoda Track Counteroffensive. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast, Over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, narrated and written by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm releasing a series I did in collaboration with Dave Holland on all the medals of honor earned on Guadalcanal. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Now, the last time we spoke about the situation on Green Hell, General Hori and his forces were pulling back and ironically beginning to perform the same type of fighting withdrawal the Papuan and Australian forces had been performing for weeks. General MacArthur made some complaints and eventually got General Blamey to go over to New Guinea to take personal command of the situation. Well, when Blamey showed up on the 23rd of September as Commander-in-Chief, Rawl met with him and quickly made it clear he did not welcome him, and that the arrangement would be very painful. General Rawl was told he could keep command of the First Corps. He was quite pissed off to find out that Blamey would be taking command of the rest. Rawl said of the situation, He comes here when the tide is on the turn, and all is likely to be well. He cannot influence the local situation in any way but he will get the kudos, and it will be said, rather pittingly, that he came here to hold my hand and bolster me up. A very strange situation emerged between the two, prompting Blamey to ask Major General Burston, the head of the Army's medical service, and an old friend of Rawl, to try and speak to him and make him understand the situation. Yes, and this did not seem to help too much, because by September the 28th, Blamey relieved Rawl of command and sent a letter to Curtin saying he relieved Rawl because he had a non-cooperative attitude. It's code word for two men just hating each other. 
While things were rough on both sides, Brigadier Ether had sent forward some of the 25th Battalion along the track to see if any ground could be gained. They were successful, and this prompted him to move some artillery pieces to bombard the Japanese positions. By September the 26th, the South Seas Detachment retreated for the first time, and Hori literally had no protocol for such a thing. He was forced to perform an ad hoc fighting withdrawal, identical to the one the Australians had been performing against his own men for weeks along the Kokoda track. When Ether finally launched an assault against Oribawa, they found no enemy there, just a ton of abandoned equipment. It turns out the Japanese had simply got up and left Oribawa, and the 2nd Battalion of Major Hori was the first group to pull out. However, they would not simply be getting up and fleeing north. No, they were going to create defensive positions all along the way to hinder the Allied advance. Horhee's men took some high ground overlooking the Eora Creek. The next group was the 3rd Battalion of Colonel Kuwada, who began their retreat on September the 26th, with the Kowai Battalion taking up the rear and their 9th Company taking up a rearguard position. When Ether and his men found Oribawa completely abandoned, they believed something was afoot, and thus they did not rush out to pursue the enemy, wary that there might be some traps lurking about every corner. Ether sent patrols as far as Nehru, looking for presence of the enemy, but found none. Nehru, just like Oribawa, was completely abandoned. The South Seas detachment were completely exhausted. Do remember, the entire reason for the Japanese pullback was because, well, they had run past their logistical limits on New Guinea, and provisions were all but non-existent. The men were starving, countless were injured, and they had to be carried using stretchers. The wounded could see the men carrying them were literally dying before their eyes from starvation, illness, and just pure exhaustion. Many of the wounded would often cry out, Please, leave us here, let us die in an absolute harrowing effort to save their comrades' lives. Yet many of the stretcher bearers pressed on stoically, all the way back over the Owen Stanley Range. Imagine the feeling of these men, by the way. They had fought tooth and nail, without supplies for most part, to get past all the different and quite horrible terrains, with mud sucking up their boots, mosquitoes giving them malaria, and torrential rain never ceasing. They got so close to their prime objective of Port Moresby, only to receive orders from high command to turn back. It must have been absolutely gut-wrenching. By the last days of September, General Hori's skeletal army crawled its way back along the Maguli Range before heading towards the Eora Creek. With the Japanese retreating along the Kokoda Track, across the multiple ridges and mountains to get to Buna, with the Australian and Papuans hot on their heels, General MacArthur was anxious to get some good old-fashioned American boys into the fight. While he wanted to use his troops to attack the enemy's beachhead facilities along the coast, the largest handicap he faced was, well, a lack of any amphibious crafts that could get some of those good old American boys ashore safely. The American High Command had its eyes all over Guadalcanal, where the Japanese were heavily committed to as well now. On October the 1st, General MacArthur issued an operation order. In the absence of secure lines of communication on the north coast of New Guinea, we still are unable to maintain large forces there. Thus, if any Allied troops arrived in large numbers to Green Hell, 
planners had to figure out a way to quickly get the men to perform rapid fighting withdrawals in case the Japanese suddenly overwhelmed them again. General Kenny suggested that they begin flying troops to a small landing strip that the Australian engineers were now busy building up in the deserted Wanagala mission, around halfway along the coast between Milna Bay and Buna. Kenny claimed that he could get supplies over there by airdrop while simultaneously tossing troops using aircraft transports. Thus, in the first week of October, American Douglas C-47 Dakotas flew the Australian 2nd and 10th Battalions of the 18th Brigade to Wanagala. They were quickly joined by American Army engineers, anti-aircraft guns, and their crews. They were tasked with expanding the airfield in the hopes some heavy bombers and fighters could start operating there. The engineers would accomplish their mission in a couple of weeks without the Japanese ever taking notice. Probably because they were too busy starving and fighting off the Allied pursuers, mind you. By October the 14th, Kenny's planes would fly the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the 128th Infantry Regiment of the 32nd U.S. Infantry Division and the Australian 2nd and 6th Independent Companies to Winnegala. From there, the men awaited orders for a march northwest along the coast to hit the Japanese at Buna. A plan was soon developed to move some of these men along a coastal track to Pongani, around 30 miles south of Buna. Air reconnaissance claimed Pongani was free of any enemy presence. The American Australians had to cross over countless rivers and deep swamps to reach Pongani, and it would be the commando units of the 2nd and 6th independent companies who reached the destination first. The men of the American 3rd Battalion eventually settled up on setting up a camp at a place called Guri Guri, to which the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Kelsey Miller, called the place the most filthy, swampy, mosquito-infested area he had ever seen in New Guinea. On October the 17th, a sort of coastal shuttle system began to operate from Milna Bay to Pangani, which was the most forward base towards Buna at the time. Fishing ships were bringing supplies from Milna Bay through a route that went over numerous coral reefs. It was the work of several coast watchers who charted the route all the way up to Wanagela, where they offloaded their cargoes. From there, the cargo was put aboard some shallow draft luggers at night to evade Japanese air reconnaissance, and they made their way to sail for Pangani. Even for these smaller luggers, to close in on several hundred yards to the coast around Pangani risked striking coral and sinking, so the luggers would drop anchor and it was up to American troops led by Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence McKenney, the quartermaster of the 32nd Infantry Division, to jump naked into the sea using a mix of smaller vessels like canoes, rowboats, and canvas-sided engineer boats to make the rest of the trip. One soldier recalled, Waves pounding over our heads like hell as we made our way to the beach. The guys under McKenney had to make, quote, Dozens of exhausting trips without rest each night in order to get the vulnerable trawlers on their way again before daylight. The engineers were soon hard at work constructing a new airfield at Pangani, where Major General Edwin Forrest Harding, commanding the 32nd Division, learnt of an existing but albeit small field only 45 miles away that could serve as a landing strip. A missionary named Cecil Abel had brought this information to him. Cecil was a 39-year-old lifelong resident of New Guinea, who knew the area quite well, 
and he figured the field had a lot of potential for Allied war cause. Harding asked Cecil to return to this mysterious field and enlist local natives for labor to prepare it to become a landing strip. Equipment was dropped by parachutes from the Air Forces to enable the project, and the first C-47 landed at what became known as Abel's Field on October the 19th. Now, while all of this was happening, over in the Kokoda track, the Australians were pushing up the track as General MacArthur was planning to employ the 126th and 128th regiments led by Lieutenant General Robert Eichelberger. Eichelberger's men, alongside several hundred native carriers, had been trekking it from a new base of operations at Pangani, the one we were just talking about, across the Owen Stanley Range via the Kappa Kappa Trail towards a place called Jare. There, they would be able to flank some of the retreating Japanese forces, pushing them hard towards the coast. Eichelberger's men were going to support a new counteroffensive led by General Allen's 7th Division to drive the Japanese further north towards the Kamusi River line. It should be noted that the thinking of General MacArthur at this time was that the Japanese forces on Guadalcanal might succeed in retaking Henderson Field and if or when that occurred, they would be able to toss more men back onto New Guinea. So with that in mind, MacArthur always had a plan for his forces to potentially run headfirst into overwhelming enemy numbers, and thus he always had to have a quick evacuation plan. And there was always the enormous issue of logistical collapse, which General Horry had learnt all too well, the hard way. The logistical issue was always at the crux of things. It literally haunted the Allied command. General Blamey wanted to limit using large numbers of troops, in case the logistics fell apart on them. So he decided he was going to use the 25th and the 16th brigades for the first part of the counteroffensive. But only the 2nd Battalion of the 126th Regiment would be sent along the Jare Trail to try and cut off the Japanese retreat at a place called Weiropi. However, the Americans found the trek through some really nasty jungle terrain to be quite rough, they arrived far too late and far too exhausted to put up much of a fight. Meanwhile, the 3rd Battalion, after taking Nauru, sent its C Company to see what was occurring at Ifogi, and they ran into, well, zero opposition. Ifogi was quickly occupied, but from there, further patrols from the 3rd and 25th Battalions began to clash with Japanese rearguard between Templeton's Crossing and Miola on October the 8th. The patrol units were repelled and had to withdraw to Mayola, and on top of this, the logistical issue started to strike its ugly head again. When the Australians had gone past Uberi, they had around 900 native carriers, but each day saw carriers becoming sick or they deserted. The airdrop campaign was inefficient as ever. Tons of supplies were mismanaged and they fell all over the place. With the looming supply issue, Brigadier Ether was forced to wait to assemble his four battalions at Ifogi before continuing to pursue the enemy. Eventually, General Allen ordered Ether to concentrate his forces at Meola, and another place called Kagi, until the 16th Brigade led by Brigadier John Lloyd would arrive to help. And in the meantime, General Allens and Herring were racking their heads trying to get the air supply program to provide better results. Over on the Japanese side, General Hayakitake was planning on employing the 38th Division to launch a second invasion attempt at Milna Bay, alongside another plan aimed at performing an amphibious assault on Port Moresby itself. Hayakitake ordered General Hori to set up an offensive base of operations at Izurava, while also setting up defensive positions in Buna 
and the Gurwa areas. Hori deployed the 41st Regiment for the defensive operations, but faced real challenges for the offensive ones. The retreat along the Kokoda track had crushed the Japanese morale. The soldiers felt completely abandoned by their superiors, and many men began deserting along the way. Because of this, and the logistical nightmare, no real offensive would really ever come to fruition. When Hori's men finally reached Izuraba, he broke off the ad hoc Stanley detachment to take up a defensive position around the Aurora Creek. They had time to form dugout pits, well disguised using jungle brush, and set up positions on high vantage points as well. Their defensive positions overlooked Templeton's Crossing, the Aurora Village, and parts of Kagi and Moyola tracks. On October the 11th, Ether sent the 33rd and 25th Battalions to seize Templeton's Crossing, where the men ran into the Stanley detachments in some thick jungle near the Mayola track. Even though the Australians were pushing ahead as quietly as they could, they ran straight into some machine gun pits held by 520 men under Major Hori. The Japanese defenders fought like lions, moving their machine guns from one position to another, keeping the Australians scrambling, trying to figure out where they were being fired upon from. The dugout one-man holes were camouflaged very well, making it impossible for the Australians to pinpoint where they were. Over by the Kagi track, 150 Japanese holed up in their dugouts along the ridge of Mount Bellamy unleashed hell upon an Australian forward unit on October the 13th. From their high ground positions, they managed to cause hellish casualties, and the Australians were unable to flank their positions. Alongside all of this, one of the most deadly aspects of the Japanese warfare on both Green Hell and Starvation Island, that of their snipers, were picking off allies left, right, and center during intense combat pitches. Not sure if I've said it yet in this series, but the Japanese snipers are not atypical to the other nation snipers during World War II. It's more so a result of the climate that they're fighting in, that being a lot of jungle on these islands. But basically, these sniper units are a lot more mobile than your typical sniper. They're not waiting around as much, and they're actively trying to ambush and kill enemies by just going over to them. You basically have to imagine, if you were an American or Australian patrol on Guadalcanal or New Guinea, that these snipers are literally just out there, sometimes alone, just looking to pick off a few of your guys at all times. It had an extremely effective psychological effect on the Allies, to say the least. On October the 14th, a torrential amount of rain began to fall, leading to a small lull in the action. On October the 15th, either decided to toss the 3rd Battalion at the enemy to break their left flank along the Mayola track. But unbeknownst to him, the Japanese had taken advantage of the torrential downpour on October the 14th to withdraw from their positions to a second line of defense around Templeton's Crossing. This position overlooked the Aurora Creek Bridge, and these were still only forward defenses. The main bulk of the force was further back around Izurava, sitting upon a ridge overlooking the Aurora village. Back in Port Moresby, Generals MacArthur and Blamey were screaming at their commanders to pursue an enemy they assumed was in a full retreat. The reality, however, was that the Japanese were beginning to form a defense in depth, and had established over four major defensive positions. The ad hoc Stanley detachment was able to hold off the Australians long enough for other Japanese forces to make their way further back while the Allied logistics were crumbling. It was really one of those how-the-turn-tables kind of moment. Regardless, the Australians pushed on, suffering the same fate the Japanese had over their offensive along the Kokoda track. Having found no enemy opposition anymore, in the machine gun 
hell pits that they had run into on the October the 13th, they moved towards Templeton's Crossing by October the 16th. The next morning, the 3rd Battalion ran into the Stanley Detachment again, but this time, they had backup in the form of the 1st Battalion, led by Colonel Tsukamoto, though he was not there personally to lead his troops. The Japanese lobbed grenades and ambushed them with their dugout machine gun pits, causing havoc. The onslaught from the dugouts was so intense, some emboldened Japanese units began to perform counterattacks, increasing the casualties for the invaders. Despite the reign of hell, the Australians held firm and kept pushing forward, forcing the Japanese units back to the Aurora village. At this point, Generals MacArthur and Blamey were breathing down General Allen's neck, demanding more results. They believed his men were not putting up sufficient effort in driving back the Japanese. But, in truth, it was the ever-so-present issue of logistics again rearing its ugly head. Allen only had enough native carriers to support three battalions. Thus, he was only tossing three battalions forward into contact with the enemy at any given time. Allen was also waiting for the 16th Brigade to arrive to relieve Ether's exhausted men. And on October the 19th, the 2nd Battalion were the first to arrive to help the 3rd Battalion against the Japanese counterattacks. Soon Lloyd's men began to relieve the exhausted 25th and 23rd Battalions, and they launched fierce attacks, pushing back the enemy. Now the Japanese yet again began to peel back, now to the other side of the Aurora Creek. By October the 20th, three battalions of the 16th Brigade had crossed Templeton's Crossing, and Lloyd took command of the Moriaba force from Ether, whom would resume command over his own battalions. Lloyd and the men were surprised to find the Japanese were gone again, and they began to push along the track while being ambushed by Japanese platoons and scouts along the way. Both the Australians and Japanese were suffering from logistical problems, and both sides had resorted to foraging the local village gardens along the track to make ends meet. However, all of this foraging that had been done by the Japanese during their advance towards Port Moresby, well, now that they were retreating from it, all of that food had already been foraged from these gardens. There was no more to be found. The Australians were very hungry, but the Japanese were on the verge of starvation. Many of the Japanese were suffering from dysentery and beriberi. Things got so bad, the ultimate act of desperation reared its ugly head. Cannibalism. One Japanese officer wrote in his diary on October the 17th, after crossing the Aurora Creek, this. My troops have been reduced to eating roots and grass. Two days later, he wrote this in his diary. Because of the food shortage, some companies have been eating human flesh of Australian soldiers. The Japanese were grabbing Australian corpses and cutting off strips of flesh from their thighs with their bayonets and they cooked it in their army-issued metal dixies. There are a ton of these stories, notably from New Guinea, although it would occur in many other places. Now, General Hori made his main defensive position along the northern ridge overlooking the Aurora village. There was a vast network of machine gun dugouts, fire trenches on higher elevations, and they all had a clear view of fire to the south. On October the 22nd, two companies of the 2nd and 3rd battalions were entering Aurora village, when they were met with motor and machine gun fire seemingly coming out of nowhere. The companies tried to work their way up the ridge to hit the defenders, but it was to no avail as the Japanese enjoyed some artillery support from a mountain gun. 
the Australians suffered tremendous casualties and performed a rather haphazard withdrawal. Lloyd then decided to launch a frontal attack across two log bridges that crossed the Aurora Creek, a plan that his battalion commanders tried to dissuade him from, but Lloyd had General Allen breathing down his neck, whose neck was already being breathed down by MacArthur and Blamey. You kind of see how these situations sometimes work out. Here is a quote from Blamey to Allen. During the last five days, you have made practically no advance against a weaker enemy. During the night of October the 22nd, the Australians showed no inclination that they were up for a night attack. And, well, who blames them? Not exactly the first thing you want to do against the Japanese who really loved night action. So, the Japanese retired under some heavy rain behind the second Eora Bridge, intending to return to their forward positions just before dawn. At 2am the next day, the rain ceased, but the Australians suddenly made their attack. Caught by surprise, some of the Australian patrols managed to rapidly secure the bridges unopposed and took advantage of the situation by taking up a position on the other side of the Aurora Creek, before the Japanese even knew what was going on. The patrol companies eventually went through some jungle, bypassing the Japanese defensive positions, and they managed to reach Alola, outflanking the enemy. Several days of battle would go by in what was becoming a battle of attrition. Both sides saw heavy casualties. Then Lloyd ordered the 2nd and 3rd battalions to move to some high ground to the west to try and hit the Japanese positions from a better vantage position. Despite their valiant efforts, the Japanese defenders still held strong, and the Australians, while applying some heavy pressure, were only beginning to make small headway now. General Hori, seeing the Australians beginning to push his men somewhat, decided to move his forces back 500 meters to an even stronger defensive position on some steeper parts of the slope. He also received some additional support in the form of the Kowai Battalion on October the 26th. Two days later, after some very bitter combat, Hori prepared for a full withdrawal towards Kokoda, with the new and fresh Kowai Battalion acting as his rearguard. Hori was making the Australians pay for every inch, the same way they had done to his men when they were advancing in Port Moresby. By October the 27th, Japanese units began to consolidate and they moved backwards, causing the Australians to push even harder. But the stalemate was still very much apparent. The Australians were suffering tremendously, not just from combat, but because of some really horrible days of torrential rain. They were wet, cold, and unable to light fires because doing so was a death wish for Japanese motor fire. The never-ending rain was turning the creek waters into raging torrents that destroyed bridges and took with them unguarded supplies. By the first light of October the 28th, Hori's 1st and 2nd Battalion began to disengage and retreat, prompting even more ferocious attacks on the Australians. Corporal Pett, described as 5 feet of dynamite, distinguished himself greatly during this action by knocking out 4 machine gun dugouts single-handedly. The Australian attack was intense and very coordinated this time. Colonel Kuwada bore the brunt of the attack, caught between multiple Australian units that had taken some higher ground, and they were hiding within mist pockets. On the morning of October the 29th, the Japanese had abandoned their positions and the engagement finally came to a close. The Australians suffered tremendously during these actions, losing a reported 412 casualties at the cost of 244 for the Japanese. A lot of criticism was levied against Lloyd for his decision to launch a frontal attack on the Aurora Creek, despite obvious evidence that the enemy had heavily defensive positions. 
General Allen, after being harassed endlessly by MacArthur and Blamey, was replaced as commander of the 7th Division by Major General George Vasey on October the 28th. Thus, Allen joined the ranks of Potts and Rowell as the third man to be purged by the super team of MacArthur and Blamey. The 16th Brigade continued to advance hot in the enemy heels, managing to capture Alola by the end of October. In the end, Hori chose to bypass Kokoda, during the withdrawal as he deemed the major town to be far too vulnerable to attacks from the south portion. Instead, he continued on towards some high ground at Oivi, near the Kamusi River. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, narrated and written by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm releasing a series I did in collaboration with Dave Holland on all the Medal of Honors earned on Guadalcanal. Check it out, it'll mean a lot to me. Well, the Japanese under General Hori certainly got to turn the tables on the Australians this time around, as they made them pay dearly for every inch they advanced along the Kokoda Track. Logistics remained a nightmare for both sides, but in the end, it was the Japanese being pushed away from their objective, Port Moresby.